0: You know, Howard Hendricks was a beloved um, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for almost 60 years. Uh, he began his ministry back in 1952 and uh, served on, stat- on uh, faculty there almost up to his death in 2013. And for most of those years, and many of you uh, know the name Howard Hendricks, because for many years, for decades, he was one of the best known and best, most beloved Bible teachers and conference speakers here in the United States. Now, for eight years during his time there in Dallas, he was also the chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys, and for that we forgive him. No, but he was the chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys for eight years. One year, um, oh, they they need Jesus to No, one year, a player uh, from the team was attending the weekly chapel service that he had during the season, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ as Savior. As was his custom soon, um, Hendricks was meeting weekly with this player one-on-one to go through some discipleship time. It didn't take long for the player to share with um, Howard Hendricks that his marriage was really in trouble. And it was in trouble because he had not been a good husband. So now that he was a believer in Jesus, now that he accepted Jesus, he wanted to know what changes he needed to make. What do I need to do? to be a better husband and a Christian husband. Well, Howard Hendricks said, well, do this. Go home and for this week, you read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 20 through to 33 every day. And then you just start to do what Paul tells you to do. Now, for those who need a little reminding, one of the verses in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 is this one. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, the next week a very visibly agitated 6 foot 4 linebacker stalked into the room, went right up to the 5 foot 8 Howard Hendricks and started telling him with a raised voice and in no uncertain terms that he didn't appreciate last week's assignment. Well, Howard Hendricks looked at him and calmly asked, "Well, what was the problem?" He said, You told me to read Ephesians 5 and just simply do what Paul said to do. That's right. Well, Paul told me to love and cherish and nurture my wife like Jesus loves me. That's right. So, I'm supposed to love my wife like Jesus loves me. Yes, you are. Well, that's impossible. I cannot possibly and never possibly will be able to love my wife like Jesus loves me. And Hendricks said, no, you can't. Now the veins in the player's neck started to bulge out. He raised his voice another two levels and said, that doesn't make any sense at all. Why would God tell me to do something that he knows I can't do? Well, Hendricks, relaying this story later, admitted that it was at this moment that he thought maybe it wasn't wise to agitate a six foot four, two hundred and fifty pound linebacker quite this level. But he looked up into this player's eyes and he says, "Because God wants to teach you how to really grow as a follower of Christ, and it's not how much you can do yourself." It is how much you're willing to let God do in you and then through you. And then he took out his Bible, and together they sat down, and a much calmer football player in Harvard Hendricks began to look at the very passage that we're looking at this morning and focusing in on Philippians chapter 2, especially verses 12 and 13. Now, we can picture the scene as Epaphroditus has arrived back in Philippi uh, and he, from Rome, and he's got this letter that we know as Philippians. And the church family gathers together because they, they want to hear this letter read. And so they're probably gathered in, as we have mentioned, Lydia's home, the first convert. She probably had the largest house. They're all sitting in their home, and Epaphroditus stands up, and he starts to read this letter, and they're hearing it for the first time. And by the time they get to this part of the letter, they probably are starting to ask some of the same questions that that football player was asking. Because Paul has laid out some really big challenges to them. I mean, he has said, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, which is live your life in a way that imitates and honors Jesus. He has said... As you live in this culture where more and more people are pressuring you to compromise your faith, stand firm on the gospel together. Be willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus if necessary as you love those people with the love of Jesus and as you share the gospel of Jesus to them. And then as a church family, remember, you have received encouragement, comfort, and love from the Lord. Now you start sharing those with each other stay on mission together of making disciples have a united purpose of honoring the lord and show it do it with humility towards each other and one more thing paul said you do all of this just like jesus you do all of this just like jesus he's he's your model that you follow and he's your motivation for what you do And I have to smile because Paul has done all that in 15 verses. He's got two and a half chapters to go. As you and I read these verses 2,000 years later, if we're honest with ourselves, we got those same questions, don't we? I mean, how can we possibly grow to the point where we are living the life that Paul's describing here? How can we possibly grow to be this much like Jesus in our lives? How do we have this kind of relationship with each other in which the love, encouragement, and comfort that we've received from God is the same that we show each other? And how do we stand in a world that is increasingly opposing us and face them with love in the gospel of Christ? Well, when we hear this and as we look at these kind of challenges, we are tempted oftentimes to do one of three things, and I've done all three of these at different points in my life. One is we just project an image of which we say, everything in my life spiritually is okay. We, we say the right things, we're doing the right things, even though on the inside we're really struggling. But we don't want anybody to see the struggle, so we project this, everything is okay. Another thing is, we want to rush the process too fast. We want, to, we want to just get it done. We just want to get these things done in our lives. And we want a microwave spiritual experience, and God goes, no, I'm more like a crock pot on slow simmer. It takes time. Growing slowly over time as we soak in God's Word, and the Holy Spirit soaks in us. But when we try to rush, we tend to get discouraged when things don't happen fast enough. Sometimes, though, I think most of us choose to strive and just try harder. I mean, we'll just try harder. We will do more stuff. We'll get involved in more activities. We will attend more Bible studies. We'll do more ministry because that will make us the people God wants us to be. But over time, striving will wear you out. And so God's got a better way. He's got a better way. God says in these verses here's what we do. You bring the desire and determination to grow and be like Jesus to me, and I'll give you the grace to move forward. You bring the desire and the determination to grow, and then I'll give you the grace to. move forward I'll give you the grace to grow and I'll give you the grace to become the people in the person that I am calling you to be and I will do it step by step over time and as we go through the passage together this morning we're going to see that Paul gives us three couplets he's going to say here's what you do and then he's going to say and this is what God will do in return And so we're going to be looking at three things that we bring to God. And then he's he's going to talk about the three things that God will do in our lives as a result. And in the process, we'll find out that this is God's way of growing us. And the first thing is this Paul says, make an intentional and determined effort to grow, and then let God enable you. Make an intentional and determined effort to grow. But then let God enable you. And now we are in verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He says, first of all, make this intentional and determined effort to live a life of obedience to God and His Word. Work out your salvation, he says. The work out your salvation is simply another way of saying, live a life that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's important that he we see that he does not say, work for your salvation. He says, work out your salvation. This is something that's happening in our lives after we have a relationship with Jesus, not something that creates the relationship with Jesus. So after we have come to saving faith in Christ, now work out the salvation that's been given to us. This is a a life in which we are consistently seeking to honor the Lord through loving obedience to Him. This word, work out, means to continuously work Until completion. To be continuously working until completion. It was a word that was used to describe the hard physical labor that a miner puts in as he's mining gold or some other mineral. And so the thing that we are working at, the thing that we're continuously working on until it's brought to a completion, is our salvation. Now, as we saw a few weeks ago, when Paul uses the word salvation, he's talking about that complete spiritual journey that you and I are on from the moment we accept Christ as Savior to the moment we see His face and experience glorification. It includes placing faith in Christ as our Savior and receiving forgiveness and receiving eternal life, being brought into the God's family as His child and held securely there by His love. And the Bible calls that justification. It includes the fact that now we are in this process of growing to become more and more like Jesus over time, and that's called sanctification. And then there is that moment that we will enter into the presence of Jesus Christ either at our death or at His coming, and the Bible says that's our glorification. And our justification, sanctification, glorification, all of that is our salvation. Salvation is the overarching term. Those are the three pieces of it, the three parts of the experience. Our salvation is coming to Jesus Christ, and we're justified. It is growing in Jesus as we are sanctified, and then it is that moment in which we actually see Jesus, and we are glorified. And while we are in that process, we are growing step by step to be like Jesus, until the moment we see Jesus. Because when we see Jesus, the spiritual journey that you and I are on in Christ will be completed. And we will, be, and we will experience fullness in him. But until then, we work out our salvation. We do it with fear and trembling. We do it with fear and trembling. And that's, that's a little surprising, isn't it? You know, this idea of work out our salvation, that, that's something we might expect to see. But what's this thing about us Christians, we come to God with fear and trembling? Well, fear and trembling is a phrase that simply means to have deep respect and reverence for God. To have a deep respect and a reverence for God. It is this awareness also that there are consequences for Disobedience. And so we have this reverence and respect for God, and we understand that there are consequences if we choose disobedience. And so we work out our salvation with deep respect and reverence. God has said to um, us and to the Philippians, here is exactly how I want you to relate to the world and the people around you. Here is how I want you to relate with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I want you to live so that your life reflects the life of my son, Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you will be living a life that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. You will honor me. And when he puts down with fear and trembling, it's a warning. Do not take God and his commands lightly. Do not take God nor His commands lightly because God is very serious about what He has said. These are not the suggestions of the Lord. They're the commandments of the Lord. And He expects obedience. And so with respect and reverence because He is God and with the understanding of there are consequences if we choose disobedience, we work out our salvation as we become more and more like Christ. You know, as we do that and as we are living this life of consistent loving obedience to God with respect and reverence for who he is, that's the desire we bring to God. But here's the important thing. Now we have to remember it's God who's going to work in us to will and fulfill his good pleasure. It's God in his grace that's going to give us the ability to actually then fulfill that which we are committing to do. And so he says in verse 13, for it is God who works in you, same word work. (laughs) So God is working diligently, consistently, until completion in our lives to first will and then to work for or do or accomplish his good pleasure. You see, God is never going to tell us to do something that he does not give us the grace to do. He will never give us something to do and say, now go out and do it on your own. He will tell us what to do. He'll give us his commands. He will explain the design that he has created for this life, and he will say, now I will give you the grace to step out and do this. I am working in you. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is working in us, and he will turn our will to his will, and then he'll turn our actions to obedience. He will turn our will to be his will, and then we will step out in obedience, but it's always because of God's grace, his work in our lives. To say that he will give us the ability to will means to make a thoughtful, purposeful choice. We hear what God has said, and we make a thoughtful choice to step out in obedience. You know, I've often found myself identifying with the dad in the story of Mark chapter nine, that's the, the dad who brings his son to Jesus, and he's demon-possessed, And this dad is just absolutely desperate. And it says, he goes up to Jesus and, the, and then with this desperate voice, says, "If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us." And Jesus' response is, "If I can," <laughs> it's like, "Well, you mean if I can." And then he says, all things are possible for one who believes. And I love it. The dad says, I believe. And then he gets real. Help me in my unbelief. (laughs) I believe, that's what I want. I want to believe. But if I'm real, I have unbelief. And so, help me in my unbelief. I have found myself in those situations where I've said, Lord, I hear what you're saying and I want to do it, but I need your help. God, I do want to forgive this person, but help me let go of the offense and the hurt. God, I I want to love that person as you tell me to love them, but please help me with my agitation towards them. God, I want to do what you've called me to do, but there's this sin barrier in my life, my sin barrier in my life. And so, Lord, deal with that so that I can step out in obedience to you. And then God says, not only will I give you the will, but then I'll give you the ability to fulfill. That word fulfill here means to receive the energy to accomplish a task. To receive the energy to accomplish a task. And God does this through the enabling ministry of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know, Jesus tells his dad, have faith. And the dad wants to, but he can't generate that faith on his own. And so he asks Jesus, give me the ability to believe. And Jesus does. And we know that because the son is healed. God gives us these instructions and commands in his word, including what we're looking at here in Philippians. And we make this intentional choice. Yes, Lord, we want to obey and line our lives up in your direction. But we recognize we can't do it on our own. And so then we call out to God and we pray, Lord, give me the will. Help me make the decision. And then give me the ability to step out in obedience. And as you and I take that first step, God's grace enables us to finish it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. From beginning at the moment of salvation until you see the face of Jesus, we are in this wonderful journey of growth by the enabling grace of God. We bring the desire and the determination. God gives the enabling grace for us to fulfill and follow through. The next couplet that he brings out is Make an attitude adjustment, and God will enhance your testimony for Christ. Make an attitude adjustment, and God will enhance your testimony for Christ. And look at verse 14. He says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning. <laughs> Do I hear an ouch? You know, do all things without grumbling or questioning. You know, grumbling is this negative response to something where we're we're muttering. You know, it's just a little bit under the breath, but it's enough for other people to hear. (laughs) And we're just muttering and grumbling about what we don't like about this or why this is wrong or why we don't want to do this. You know, for the grumbler, the glass is always half empty and he wants others to agree with him. And so there's the muttering that begins to take place. Questioning is someone who steps out and actually enters into a dispute with someone else. They argue with something else. This is when you make a judgment on somebody or you make a judgment on something and you step out in rejection. And you verbalize that with a disputing, with a questioning, with an arguing with another person or another group of people. No, this is wrong. Or that person is wrong. Or no, that's not what we should do. And the purpose and the intent of someone that's questioning is to stop what's about to happen. The interesting thing with these words grumbling and questioning is there is a Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And in that Greek version, these two words grumbling and questioning are used to describe the Jews in the wilderness under the leadership of Moses. So if you want to know what Paul's talking about here, just take your mind back and watch and look at the Jews under Moses. This is those times where there's that constant complaining and questioning because nothing was ever right. We got manna to eat. We want quail. We have too much quail to eat. And I'm not even sure God answered that one. We got water out of a rock when there was no water. We got water out of a rock when there was no water. But then the next time we have no water, we're grumbling and complaining and saying, why did Moses bring us out here in the wilderness to die of thirst? We want to go back to Egypt as slaves. That's grumbling and complaining. They had such a habit of grumbling and complaining, though, that they make that disastrous decision to not go in the promised land when God gave them the opportunity. They grumbled and complained themselves right out of God's blessing. And as a result of that disastrous decision, that whole generation of adults die and they're buried in the wilderness. Grumbling and complaining will always cause you to miss what God is doing. And so Paul says, have an attitude adjustment. Stop grumbling and complaining. And he says, this is about all things. <laughs> in all things, don't grumble and complain. And he's referring back to everything he's written before this. And so as I look out at the people and the culture around me, am I standing firm in the gospel and sharing the love and gospel of Jesus Christ, or am I grumbling and complaining about everything? As I relate to other believers in my church family, Am I sharing love, encouragement, and comfort with them that I've received of the Lord? Am I focused on mission together of sharing Christ and making disciples and being humble toward one another? Or am I grumbling and questioning things that are happening or grumbling and questioning about other people, their motives, their involvement, and on and on it goes. And so Paul says, here's here's what you need to do. You've got to ask this question. You go before the Lord in a prayerful, humble spirit and say, Lord, do I need an attitude adjustment? Do I need an attitude adjustment? Am I grumbling and complaining? And then God says, or Paul says rather, then God replaces that grumbling and questioning with a pure Christ-like testimony. He replaced that grumbling and questioning with a pure Christ-like testimony. We pick it up in verse 15. He says, you do this that you may Be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. And we'll pause right there. He says, if you stop grumbling and complaining, here's what can happen as you are working out your salvation, as you're growing in Christ. First of all, you'll be blameless. You'll be blameless. That means to be without defect or blemish. It's the idea of a pattern of obedience that is producing a life that is righteous and holy over time. It's a life that more and more is reflecting Jesus Christ, and so we're blameless. We become innocent. That is, we're pure. We're not mixing Jesus with sin and trying to somehow make that work. There's purity in our lives in terms of Christ is Lord, and we, there is a spiritual purity. There's a behavioral purity in our life. And we'll be without blemish. That, that is to be above reproach. It's the idea of being authentic and of being real. This is talking about the, having a godly reputation. And so we have this life that reflects Christ, and so. we are becoming more and more holy and righteous and like Jesus over time. And so there's more and more purity in my life. And so I have this godly reputation as a Jesus follower. And in fact, he says, you do this as children of God. We want people to know who we are. We want people to know we're followers of Jesus. Because the first thing that people will base their, their thoughts about the gospel on is what they have seen in those who claim to be Jesus followers. People are not evaluating us according to our doctrine. They are evaluating the gospel by what they see in our lives. And the thing is, is if I'm living a life that is blameless, if I'm living a life that is pure, if I have this reputation of godliness, I want them to see me. I want them to associate Christ with me. Because as they've seen Jesus in my life, now they're ready to hear me share about how they can have that same relationship with him as I do. But why should they want a relationship with a God who's made no difference in my life? But they will want to know the Jesus that has transformed my life. And that's the whole point that Paul is making here. Because he, he goes on and he says that we will then stand in this crooked and twisted generation as lights. As lights. You see, we will shine as lights in this sin-darkened world with the gospel of Jesus Christ because this world is crooked. That means something that is deformed and twisted and no longer conforms to standards. If you're a machinist, you know exactly what that is. You know, you can have something that looks okay, but if that doesn't go up the specs exactly, it's not going to fit where it needs to fit. It's that idea of being twisted, of being deformed. There's a standard, and you're not meeting the standard. And of course, the standard is the Word of God. Twisted is an interesting word because it means to actively seek to be crooked. (laughs) You're actively seeking to be crooked. And so what Paul is saying is this word has been deeply impacted by sin and God's image in people and creation has been tarnished and it has been twisted. And more than that, the world is actively pursuing to be even further in rebellion against God and His standards. That's the world. And Paul says, we stand in the world as a shining light. The word there is for star. Star. Paul's point is we're not the moon. We don't just reflect light. We are a star. The, the, the light comes up from within us. We are the light, Jesus is of the world. And we know it's God's presence and the Holy Spirit's ministry in my life. But the point is my life is generating the testimony of a transformed life. And I shine like a star in the dark sky. And when I offer to the word to the world is the word of life. We stand on the word of life. That's the gospel. Because a sin-darkened world that is twisted and in rebellion against God needs Jesus. They need Jesus because that's the source of life. And then the final couplet, and we'll close with this: is Paul says, make. Growing forward your goal in life and experience God-given joy. Make growing forward your goal in life. Make what we've just seen, these other things, the goal of your life, and you will experience God-given joy. Picking it up at the second half of verse 16, it says, "...so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain." Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice in me. What Paul is saying here is he knows that this upcoming trial that he's waiting for could result in his execution. And that's going to be both the end of his life and the end of his ministry. And Paul says, but I'm at peace with that as long as I know that my efforts and my investment in you have not been in vain. If my ministry has been effective, and I will know that as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling through the enabling grace of God. You live the life that we're talking about here, Paul says, and I have joy and will rejoice even in death Because my life was effective in changing yours. My ministry was effective for Christ and the gospel. And then he takes it another step. And he says, and you need to understand that your determination to grow in their walk with Christ, enabled by the grace of God, will be revealed at the moment that you see Jesus as it will be for all of us. There's our life right there, seen through the eyes of Christ. And you will experience joy because you made the determined decision and effort to work out your salvation by grace. And so Paul says, as I see you do that, I'll have joy because it'll be through the effect of my ministry. Praise God. God used me. And as you're doing it, you have joy because you know that you're doing the same now in the lives of other people. What Paul had done in the lives of the Philippians, they were now doing in the lives of others, and that ripple has continued until 2023 at Grace Bible Church. The rippling ministry of the gospel shared generation to generation, bringing people to Jesus and transforming lives, and here we are today. And Paul says, when that's your life, Jesus gives you joy. Because you have counted for him in his kingdom. And so Paul is saying the same as Howard Hendricks did to that football player. The question is not how much I can muster up and do for God, but it's how much am I willing to let God do in and through me. He concludes, as Hendricks concludes, the story about that football player and his wife, and he says, that football player over time began to indeed change. And his marriage experienced healing, and then it became more and more healthy. And then about a year after the football player had accepted Christ, his wife, observing all the changes she was seeing in her husband's life, accepted Christ, and they began to follow Jesus together. You and I bring the desire to live a life of loving obedience to God, and then he enables us by grace. And when we reach the end of ourselves, we pray for the grace to move forward. And one step at a time, over time, God changes us. I'm warned, avoid grumbling and complaining and questioning. But seek to live a life of purity and spiritual integrity and shine in a world that's darkened by sin. And watch while God draws people to Jesus through you. And when God draws people to Jesus through you, you will have joy. Amen. So the question I leave you with, what step is God calling you to take? There's always a next step. What's yours? You know, take some time, God, what's this next step you have for me in my life? And then, by the grace of God, be willing to let him do that work in your life that enables you to move forward to the glory of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for this life you've called us to, Lord. you saved us and justified us. You're changing us and sanctifying us. And one day, we will have the pure joy of seeing the face of Jesus and we experience glorification in him. In the meantime, Lord... May we truly set aside grumbling and questioning and may we embrace lives, Lord, that by your grace are pure and reputations of godliness that the world around us might see Christ and be drawn to saving faith in him. Lord, we thank you that you've called us to do this together as a church family and teach us more and more of what it means to walk with you together. And we give this to you all.